John chapter 18, and also if you'll flip over and hold your place in Matthew 26 as well. We're going to be uh, studying in both of those spots this morning. John 18 and Matthew 26. I've entitled this teaching this morning, Praying and Sleeping. And you're going to understand why as we get into the text, but I would just guess that we all struggle with that, don't we? How many of you here like to, when you go to bed at night, I'm just going to lay down in bed and spend some time with the Lord, either reading or praying, and it doesn't go as well as you'd hoped. You, You tend to doze off. So we have praying or studying with good intentions, but sleeping comes on fast, doesn't it? We grow weary and we, we fall asleep. And so we're going to see how that plays out in the lives of the uh, disciples, the apostles, uh, in our text that we're going to be looking at this morning. So starting with in John chapter 18, verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. So last week in our study, we finished chapter 17. And over time, we had looked very closely at what is, we refer to as what? The the real Lord's Prayer. Not the Lord's Prayer that we see in Matthew chapter 6, but Jesus praying uh, with his disciples present and praying for and about himself. We saw praying for and about his disciples, and praying for and about us as well. And so he's finished that prayer and he's moving on. So as we've seen and heard as was written for us, the account of John, Jesus has spent this intimate time together, as we've looked at it over the past couple months, with his disciples in chapters 13 through 17. And this week as we start chapter 18, we see that Jesus and his disciples are moving Two were into the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, a long time ago, well over a year ago for us, in our unt- introduction to the book of John, we looked at and we talked about what is called the Rashomon effect. Now for those of you that were here for our first service all that long time ago, this will sound familiar to you, but I wanted to go over this again so we have a good basis for what we're going to be looking at this morning. The Rashomon effect is a term that has been used by a number of different scholars, journalists, and film critics even to refer to contradictory interpretations of the same events by different persons. And it's a problem that arises in the process of uncovering truth about a certain situation, the Rashomon effect. It's, it's named from a 1950s movie in which four characters all witness the same event, yet each has a very different but equally plausible opinion of what actually happened. This phenomenon is very real, and it's studied in the fields of psychology and criminology. That, that makes sense, doesn't it? We even know from... Uh, the detective shows and the police shows that we see have seen on TV when we watch TV, honestly, like we don't a whole lot, Brian, but, but when we do, uh, we know that that takes place as they talk to the different witnesses about a certain crime or event that's taken place. Sometimes they get different stories, different viewpoints on, on what happened. Now, there are a lot of reasons why people have different opinions when given the same facts, most of the difference is because the observers themselves are different. 
We're, we're all built different. We all see things differently, don't we? So they have varied backgrounds, varied knowledge and expectations. Some of you sports fans in here this morning may remember back in the 72 AFC Divisional Football game between the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Oakland Raiders, there were what was referred to as the Immaculate Reception. How many of you remember that? The Immaculate Reception. Well, it was one of the most... <laughs> How many of you here are old enough to remember that? <laughs> You know, there's still replays and that sort of thing, right? For the younger folks in the crowd. But <laughs> so anyway, you have the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Oakland Raiders, and this is one of the most controversial plays in NFL history. There were thousands of people at the game, thousands of people watching it on TV, and we have four main characters in this. You have Terry Bradshaw, the quarterback of the Steelers, Franco Harris, the running back, Frenchie Fuqua, who was another running back for the Steelers, which, not a real football name, is it? Frenchie Fuqua, you know? <laughs> Should be an artist or something, you know? Something other than a football player, right? And then you have Jack Tatum. Jack Tatum, now that's a, that's a football name there, yeah. Tatum, who played defensive back for the Raiders at that time. Now this is back when the Raiders were actually winning, you know, fairly regular. Uh, any Raiders fans? <laughs> Have I offended anyone? <laughs> so the Raiders were leading this game 7-6. to six. This is an AFC divisional football game, and the score in the fourth quarter with 22 seconds left to go is 7-6. to six. Had to be a big defensive game is what I'm thinking. So the Steelers were facing 4th and 10, 22 seconds left to go on their own 40-yard line with no timeouts. Bradshaw takes the snap. He's scrambling. He throws the pass. And here's where the quandary comes in. No one knows for sure who the ball was deflected by, whether it was Frenchie Fuqua, who the pass was intended to go to, or Jack Tatum, who was defending. But the pass just kind of pops up in the air just before it hits the ground. Frank O'Hara scoops it up and runs into the end zone for the winning touchdown. Now, you can talk to this day to Raiders fans. You can talk to Steelers fans about that particular play, and you're going to get all sorts of stories about what went down. So in that scene itself, in this football game, we have that Rashomon effect that we're talking about actually playing itself out. Maybe you remember when you were growing up in in elementary school and the teacher would have you all line up in a line and then she would whisper into the first kid's ear a story and then tell the tell them to repeat that story all the way down the line and then the last kid would share what the story was what they heard and it was amazing how far from the original story it was right it, it got embellished facts were forgotten different things happened but by the time it got to the very end it was a totally different story than it was at the beginning. So we know that this Rashomon effect, as it's called, works itself out in our own lives, doesn't it? We see it happen on a regular basis. So you might be asking at this point, Pastor Jim, what does this have to do with John chapter 18? Well, we're going to look at that, okay? 
First of all, what are the Gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as you have in your Bibles, written, as we know, by four different men, same events that chronicle the life of one man, Jesus Christ. But think of these not as four Gospels, but one fourfold Gospel, if you will, all in complete agreement. John chapter 14, verse 26 tells us, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. That was being worked out in the life of the disciples as they were writing their account. Keeping in mind that that's what the Gospels are, right? At the beginning of each one of those books, you see the Gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Each gospel emphasizes a different origin of Jesus. Matthew shows that Jesus came from Abraham through David and demonstrates that he is the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. Mark shows Jesus came from Nazareth and also demonstrates that Jesus is a servant. Luke shows that Jesus came from Adam, demonstrating that Jesus is the perfect man. John shows Jesus came from heaven, demonstrating that Jesus is God. Now we know from the scripture that we've looked at several times in this study, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for Every good work. The key phrase for us there this morning is the first few words. All scripture is given by what? Inspiration of God. It is God's word. So scripture is God breathed, written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Second Peter 1, 19 through 21 says, And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So we have these men, these four authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're God-inspired, moved by the Holy Spirit, were used to write God's Word. Now, the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are considered to be what's called synoptic Gospels, meaning they're similar, or they see together in concept and approach, the same, same things. But the Gospel of John is different. It doesn't include as many events as the other Gospels, but does include more of Jesus' teachings. So we have four books written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four entitled Gospel According to all writing about the same thing, the gospel of Jesus Christ, but we have four different personalities in four different books. The same story, the same message, the same truth, the same gospel. The first three gospels major on describing events in the life of Christ. John, as we have seen through our study of the book of John, emphasizes the meaning of those events. For example, we saw that all four Gospels record the feeding of the 5,000. All four of them do. But we saw that only John records Jesus' sermon on the bread of life, which is followed 
by the miracle which he interpreted for the people. So the first three Gospels focus more on what Jesus taught and did. John focuses more on who Jesus is. So again, why go into all this? Because we're going to see a series of events that are documented in Matthew and Mark and that are not contained in the Gospel of John. Things which took place that were documented by Matthew and Mark that if looked at in what we call a harmony with one another, that the Gospel of John gives us more insight into the events that took place on that historic night. So, harmony of the Gospels, you've probably all heard of that, where you take all four of the Gospels together, uh, they're typically placed in a column uh, outline, if you will, so first column Matthew, second column Mark, Luke, and John, so forth, so that you can look at all four in harmony. Uh, I have a book at home that takes that same thing in the Harmony of the Gospels and takes the main storyline throughout all of those Gospels chronologically in boldface print. So you can start with it and read through basically all four Gospels chronologically and see all of the Gospels unfold in harmony. It's just a great thing to look at. So... In our text today, we see in verse 1 of chapter 18, it says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now, if you jump down to verse 3, it says, Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops, so Judas comes on the scene. This is John's account. And you're thinking, well, wait a minute. There's a whole lot of stuff that happens in between there that's not in John's account, and you're exactly right. So flip over to Matthew chapter 26. This is why a harmony of the Gospels is so valuable for us, because we're able to to glean from it all of the full counsel of God, all that God has for us, all of His truth, by looking at the different accounts. So Matthew chapter 26 we're going to see the account of the Lord's Supper that we also studied in, in John chapter 13, but we're going to see that in Matthew 26. It starts with verse 26. But we noticed already, as we studied through the book of John, that John's the only one that gives the account of the washing of the disciples' feet, isn't it? So right from that, we know that there's differences. But that's what... God inspired John to write. We can just rest on that. God inspired through the power of the Holy Spirit to have Matthew wrote what he wrote and so on uh, through John. So in harmony, it all happens in this order, if you will. John or Jesus washes the disciples' feet. They all partake of the Lord's Supper. Judas, Judas uh, leaves to betray Jesus. Now, in Matthew and Mark's accounts, they have the Lord's Supper. And then it says in Matthew 26, 30, if you look at it, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So, we have this account for us here. And in Matthew and in Mark both, it says they sang a hymn, and then they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, Maybe it's the worship leader background in me, but the first question I have is, what hymn? What hymn did they sing? You know. Now keep in mind, even though, especially for some of the younger in the group this morning, 
that the hymnals that you see in most of the denominational churches, those are fairly recent, you know, from 1800s to 1900s. That's not the original hymnal they would have had, you know, at the Last Supper. It may seem like it, okay? <laughs> but Fanny Crosby, you know, she wasn't that old. She was old, but she wasn't that old. You guys know who Fanny Crosby is, don't you? Some of you do. Anyway, never mind. Rabbit trail. So what we have then is these guys singing a hymn and then going out to the Mount of Olives. So what they sang, it's important to people like me. I, I would like to know. You know. That'll be on my list. Another thing to ask when I get to heaven. But it's not important what they sang. It's important that they were going and what happens after that. So after they sing this hymn, they leave for the Garden of Gethsemane, which is on the Mount of Olives. So let's read the account in Matthew 26 for further insight into the events on that night. Starting with verse 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, Drink from it, all of you. That's an important thing for us to remember as we talked when we went through John, all of you, including Judas. Judas was still there. Judas took communion with him before uh, he left. So all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So, if we stopped right there, you could insert John chapter 14 at this point. The, the, really, the last part of John chapter 13 and John chapter 14, you could insert right here in Matthew to fill in the blank, if you will. Then we carry on with uh, verse 30 in Matthew 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered and said to him, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So there, at that break, right after that verse, you could insert John chapters 15 through 17 that we've been looking at over the past six months, whatever, <laughs> however long it's taken us to get through that. But anyway, insert John 15 through 17 there. And you see how this harmony now would start to build together through Matthew and the book of John. You can do this with the book of Mark as well. And then Carrying on with Matthew 26, verse 35, Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. So it was one of those, I'm not going to deny you, and all the other disciples, yeah, 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 me, me either, amen. We, we agree, we're the same thing. We're not going to deny you either. Verse 36, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane, and said to the disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, so Peter, James, and John, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. 
Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, What? Could, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time, he went away and prayed, saying, O my Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them, went away again, and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going, see my betrayer is at hand. So right there you could insert John chapter 18. Right after verse 1 in John chapter 18, that is when this would pick up in that harmony that we've talked about. So here in our text, in John chapter 18, verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. So we're at the place where Matthew, in his account, leaves off at chapter 26, verse 26. And what's taking place? We're going to see all of those things have, have all those things were set in motion. All these things are taking, have taken place already at the time that we hit John chapter 18. Now back in 2007, you've heard me mention before, some of us from Calvary Greeley had the opportunity to go to Israel. And of all the places that we visited, there were several for me that just, just really stood out. All, all of it is uh, unique, very special. Uh, you're in the places where Jesus walked. But there were some of them that for me just, I don't know, you, you just felt like Jesus was here. Right here, the Southern Steps, without a doubt. That's a place where you walk up, they've you know, excavated those, and you go, Jesus taught on the Southern Steps. It was right here. I don't know if it was like right here or over here or over here, but it was right there in that vicinity, right? But the garden was another one of those places. Some of those olive trees that are in the garden to this day, over 2,000 years old. And we don't know where Jesus was praying, but just, just that scene, those olive trees being that old, you're just like... He was, he was right here somewhere. And it brings on a special uh, feeling for you because you just really feel like, man, alive. I am so close to where Jesus was praying in this garden. It was right here somewhere. Uh, you know, other places that we visited, not so much. I think I mentioned the upper room. Nah, just don't feel like that's quite <laughs> what it was like at all. But maybe it was in the vicinity, in the neighborhood. That's okay. Uh, you know, it's still, uh, it, it brings to life the scriptures. If you have the opportunity to go over there, go. It's, it, it truly is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. But the garden, the garden, a very special place. Now, Jesus went to the garden to pray a lot, I think. Uh, whether he had that special place, that solitary place he liked to go to again and again, we don't know. But we know that he, he went to the garden to spend time with the Father. He's got the disciples with him this time. He's got all of them. He tells 
at least eight of them, to wait here and takes the three with him. Those three that had experienced so many different things with him that the others didn't get to. Now, it wasn't because Jesus was leaving them out. Jesus is God. He can do whatever he wants, right? If he's a little closer to these three than the other eight, doesn't mean he loves the other eight any less, right? He's just close with these guys. And then we know that he was really close with John. John even writes of himself, as we've talked about, the disciple whom Jesus loved. We talked about that. We could say the same thing, right? We're, those of us that have a relationship with Jesus Christ, we are his disciples. We could get t-shirts made up, couldn't we? I am a disciple whom Jesus loves. Like the one, Jesus loves you, but I'm his favorite. Maybe you've seen that one. You know, I like that t-shirt real well. But we see that he tells his disciples in Matthew 26, 31, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the flock will be scattered. It's a prophecy we see in Zechariah chapter 13. I will strike the shepherd and the flock will be scattered. This is God talking here. The shepherd, Jesus Christ, is going to go to the cross. And we know, and we're going to see as we continue through the book of John, the disciples were scattered, weren't they? They freaked out. But then we also see this, that Peter responds in Matthew 26, 33, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Pretty bold statement from Peter right there, right? Because it's just going to be very long before he's going to hear what? Right? <laughs> oh, man. The rooster crowed. <laughs> can we, we can relate to that, can't we? Can you imagine if there's something that we said we're going to do for the Lord? I'm, I'm not going to stumble. I'm not going to do this. And it doesn't quite work out that way. And we hear faintly in the background, right? I grew up on a farm. That's not, not a very good rooster crow, I realize. But, <laughs> but you get the point. Peter also responds in John chapter 13, verse 37, I will lay down my life for your sake. Now, Peter doesn't do that initially, but he does do that eventually, doesn't he? Jesus tells Peter, assuredly, or this is for certain. <laughs> Think of it that way. This is for certain, Peter. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Now at this point in Matthew 26, in harmony with John's gospel, like we said, we can insert John chapters 15 through 17 in between verses 34 and 35 of Matthew 26. They've now come to the place called Gethsemane. Interesting word, Gethsemane. The word basically means oil press. That's another thing that I got to see when I was in Israel is an actual oil press. You know, and they're not the ones made like by Ramco or whoever, you know. It's a huge stone that just rolls around in a circular motion where they put in all of the olives with a little spout that comes off the side to, to take out the oil. But it means oil press. And in an oil press, olives were 
crushed, they were broken, they were ground up so that the oil might be produced. And we know that scripturally, oil is symbolic of what? The Holy Spirit, right? So the picture we're going to see is that something had to be crushed before oil could be given. Someone had to be crushed and broken before the Holy Spirit could be given. And that someone, of course, is Jesus Christ. We know that there's going to be an arrest, a trial, much suffering, leading to crucifixion on the cross, as well as the resurrection from the dead, before the Holy Spirit is given. Think of the words submission, and pressure, crushing, brokenness. All of these take place in the life of Jesus Christ before the giving of the Holy Spirit. In the Garden of Eden, man's relationship with the Father was broken because of rebellion. In the Garden of Gethsemane, man's relationship was restored through submission. In the Garden of Eden, man tried to hide from God. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the Son of Man bared his soul to God. We're going to see that in... In the Garden of Eden, a sword was unsheathed and a man was driven out. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, we're going to see that a sword was put away and a man was healed. We also see here in Matthew 26 that Jesus instructs his disciples to remain in a place while he and the three go a little further, Peter, James, and John. And he says to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. And then Jesus goes on a little further to pray by himself. Then we see this series of three prayers and three interactions with the disciples. Jesus is praying. Verse 39. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it is possible... Let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So we see Jesus praying, and what do we see in verses 40 and 41? We see the disciples are sleeping. He came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Then we see in verse 42, Jesus is praying. Again, a second time he went away and prayed, saying, O my Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me, unless I drink it, your will be done. And then we see in verse 43, disciples are sleeping again. He came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. Then in verse 44, we see Jesus praying again. So he left them, went away again, and prayed the third time, saying the same words. In verses 45 and 46, he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Jesus is praying in the garden. The world system that we've talked about, when the world is referred to, this world system, the religious leaders of the day, pressing in on him, a deal had been made with Judas. It was about to come down. With the world system pressing in on him, 
he continues to pray. He told his disciples, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. But here's a point we want to remember in this. It wasn't the fear of death that made the Lord Jesus so sorrowful in the garden. He didn't fear death. He, he, he faced it with courage and peace. In his three prayers, he was sorrowful because he was about to drink the cup that his father had prepared for him. And that cup, the cup of suffering, was bearing on himself all the sins of the whole world, past, present, and future. Now think about that. We know Jesus was 100% man and 100% God. And we know that as a man, he was going to suffer much, wasn't he? Death on the cross was a terrible thing. The pain that he suffered leading up to that and the punishment that he received. As a man, he went through all of that for us. We know that. That's typically what we tend to focus on, isn't it? Like, oh, he suffered so much for us. But think about this. Jesus being God himself, come down to earth, certainly to die for us, but to take on the sin of all history, of all future, upon Himself. God, who is holy, who can't be in the presence of sin, came to the earth to take upon sin for us. Now think, think about this. We know how, because of the Holy Spirit living in us to convict us of sin, we know that just one sin, how guilty we feel, don't we? Wow, man, I messed up. Just the guilt of one sin. Imagine having all of the sin of all time poured out upon you. The suffering, the sorrow. This was going to be so foreign to a man who knew no sin, right? To have any sin put upon him, but all of sin put upon him. Exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For for He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Many godly people have been arrested and beaten and even killed because of their faith. We know that. Maybe some of you have have read Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's full of their stories. Even in modern times, there are those who are heavily persecuted, even killed for their faith. But only Jesus experienced being made sin and a curse for mankind. We know that the Father has never forsaken any of His own. We have that promise in Scripture for us, don't we? I will never leave you nor forsake you. But the exception to that is Jesus Christ Himself, His one and only Son, Jesus cries out from the cross. We'll see in a few weeks. Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? He who knew no sin had the sin of everyone else, past, present, and future, poured upon himself. This is the cup that Jesus willingly drank for us. Jesus wasn't wrestling with God's will. Jesus wasn't resisting God's will. Jesus was yielding himself to the Father's will. Warren Wiersbe writes it like this. As perfect man, 
he felt the awful burden of sin and his holy soul was repelled by it. Yet as the Son of God, he knew that this was his mission in the world. He knew that that was what he was called to do. In this, we see the mystery of Jesus Christ in his humanity and his deity right here in this one scene. Imagine this scene in the garden. Imagine the agony, the sorrow of knowing, yes, as a man, he was going to suffer much. But as God himself, he was going to take upon each one of us, all of our sins, for our whole the entirety of our whole lives, just us gathered here this morning, all of that poured out on him. Can you imagine the whole world? Well, we know that Peter and the disciples, they had promised to be faithful to death. And where are they in this account? They're asleep. They're, they're sleeping. <laughs> Physically, yes, they're tired. They're sleeping. But spiritually as well. Spiritually, they are asleep. Because of all of the things, look at what we've, what we've looked at over the past few months, this intimate time that Jesus has had with his disciples, sharing with them all that he shared, teaching them all that he has taught, drawing them close to himself, praying for them, all of that time, and spiritually they went asleep in the garden. They didn't know what all was going to happen or take place, did they? He had told them. They didn't, they didn't really get it. They didn't understand it. We've got to cut them some slack, I guess, a little bit that they fell asleep because they were men. Just, they were tired. It was late. Jesus was off praying in another spot. They weren't. They were sleeping. Gang, we got to be really careful to not fall asleep spiritually. We need to be awake and praying for the will of God in all of life's situations and challenges. We saw some of that as Brian shared Wednesday night, how easily the enemy just kind of sneaks in and subtly leads us astray, right? When we're spiritually asleep, when we don't have our spiritual sensors up, if you will, to be aware, to be discerning. It happens. We know that. We've all experienced it. Paul exhorts us in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 14 through 17. Therefore he says, Awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time. Redeeming the time. I should have had Justin throw reverb on those. <laughs> Redeeming the time, time, time. There's where we struggle, isn't it? All of us. Redeeming the time. What do we do with our time? If we did an honest assessment of ourselves and looked at what our time is spent doing, spent what it's all about, we would have to say, well, boy, we spend a lot of time doing this or that things that interest, interest us, our hobbies and those kind of things. And then we balance that with being spiritually awake and spending time with the Lord. And <laughs> It's sad. 
We know that. We would all be very honest with ourselves in that regard and know that we could redeem our time better, couldn't we? We, we know that. We understand that. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. Satan has a plan to rip us off, and he's carrying it out on a daily basis. As a Christian, think about it this way. As a Christian, if we're not under attack, maybe we're not a threat. <laughs> That's a sombering thought, isn't it? But we know we are. We are being attacked from all sides in all different ways. Brian's going to carry on with that on Wednesday night as he continues to share with us about how the media attacks us. It's going to be very interesting. Again, I encourage you to come out for that. But we know that Satan is having a meeting in hell and our name's coming up, right? The days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Understanding the will of the Lord that's a hard one sometimes, isn't it? We struggle with that. I just don't know what God's will is in this, this or that situation. Well, there's only one way to find out. Draw near to God, right? <laughs> We're only, God's going to reveal His will to us as we seek Him for His will. Jesus was our example. He was perfect at doing that. Always responding to, always following and doing the will of the Father. And you say, well, yeah, but he was Jesus. <laughs> yeah, he was. But remember back a month or so ago, he promised us something, didn't he? He promised he was going to give us a helper, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit never does anything contrary to the will of the Father or to the will of the Son. So we can trust in the fact, we can rest on the fact that by being guided by, being influenced by, following the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we're going to be moving towards the will of God. We, we can have confidence in that. We can rest in that. The Holy Spirit is going to lead us into the will of God. So we should be in a place where we are drawing close to God, spending time in His Word Praying for His will. Jesus knows His disciples, doesn't He? As He knew these guys, He knows us. He tells the disciples in the garden and us what? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The Spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. How many of us, in an honest assessment of ourselves, could say, Wow, that's kind of the definition of me. <laughs> Spirit is willing, flesh is weak. I think we could all honestly say that, couldn't we? We desire to move in the Holy Spirit. We desire to follow and be obedient to what God is leading us to do, knowing and doing His will. Our spirit's willing, but sometimes our flesh is weak, isn't it? So therefore, how do we strengthen that? We got to spend time with God. We got to draw close to Him, spend time in His Word, be in prayer for His will. Jesus says to His disciples and us on this day, as we look at this text, don't fall asleep. Amen. <laughs>